You're listening to Can I Help You with the Love Master himself, Craig Shoemaker. Hi, everybody. You know what I love about podcasts? I don't have to say who I am because you would have downloaded. You would have said, okay, there's no accidental podcasting. You found me somehow. It is Dr. Craig Shoemaker. Can I help you? I think that's the name of it. I still don't know. Well, uh, we have a guest who popped into the studios here. You know, we work out of my offices, the studios, campus, whatever you want to call it. We're doing a lot of production these days. A lot is going on. I've just got three television shows and but we're not here to talk about me. We're talking maybe we'll integrate some of me into this <laughs> thing, but we are here to talk to our illustrious guest who has already downplayed his credits. He says right before we came on, he goes, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. But let me tell you who he is, Mark Robert Waldman. We're just calling can call you Mark today is a neuroscience researcher and creator of Neuro Wisdom 101 is national bestseller how god changes your brain was not your brain waves but your brain was unless it's a typo how god how god changes your brain period look it says right there it says brain was so you better go to wikipedia <laughs> uh, yeah every time every time i write my own introduction i always put a spelling error in that uh, way i know i've created it <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic oh so so you have to go to oprah uh chose you as one of the most most read books in 2012 the leading expert in spirituality communication and the brain and that's why you are here because i am in vibration with all of those things and what's amazing about that list i i had to go look because i'm the only living person on her list she usually picks a lot of dead people oh right i hope i'm not dead no no like wayne dyer i know she was big on wayne dyer she's into dr phil though he's alive and kicking yes (laughs) so you're in good company um, you're executive MBA faculty at Loyola Marymount University, author of 14 books. Now, these aren't pamphlets. These are real books. Uh, they're all published by New York publishers. No, oh, New York. Oh, okay. Well, see, I get more impressed by the minute. I know you try to be downplay your, your resume, but... Um, well, it really helps to befriend the publisher of the New York company. Oh, okay. And that, that, was, that was my secret. It took me five years to do that. This is called Can I Help You? And you can help all of us in giving us the tips. Now, everyone's going to be hit up, hitting up the New York publishers. How to sneak at the back door and get your book published. How do you do that? Be what friend your publisher. <laughs> so, and, and, but how do you find the publisher? Oh, tell us the process. Let's begin with that. Oh, how do you find the publisher? You bring the mic a little closer to you. There you go. I, don't, I don't care about germs. I'm not one of those people. It's always a catch-22 because if you haven't published a book, nobody wants to look at uh, what you're proposing. Mm-hmm. If you have published a book, then the publishers and the agents are interested in you. So it's a catch-22. That's the way it works, yeah. But if you self-publish a book, then they really don't want to look at you at all. Really? I kind of did between. If your self-published book can sell, well, in the past, because there are a lot of famous people like uh, mm-hmm. James Redfield and mm-hmm. the Celestine Prophecy, and uh, he sold like fifteen or 20,000 uh, self-published, and that was a big number. You know, back back in the nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. so he did get picked up by. Uh, so they look at your numbers publisher. as soon as you walk in there. They're looking at your numbers and go, "Oh, we have no interest in this person. He sold to his family, and that's about it." To get into a New York publisher nowadays, you have to get an agent. That I have. In, well, myself, but the people listening might not right. have one. How do you get an agent? It's well, a big process. We're back. To, we're back to the catch twenty two again. Yeah. Okay. Have you you know have you published a book before? Not only have you published a book, but have you sold at least twenty-five to 50,000 copies of that book? Mm-hmm. Or you're not going to get a New York agent. Wow. Okay? Unless you have a friend. <laughs> and everything has to come out of New York, it sounds like. Very well, New York-centric here. Yes and no. The whole market dramatically changed in 2009. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, when uh, Andy Newberg and I published How God Can Change Your Brain, 
or, or how God changes your brain. I don't even remember <laughs> anymore whether God changes your brain or whether he can change your brain. And then we get criticized because we, we're really talking about how spirituality changes your brain. I, I love that you have such an extensive resume that you don't even remember the title of your book. <laughs> this is great. I'll, I'll have someone Wikipedia it right now or Google it. I actually don't end up on Wikipedia, which I guess is good because when you're on Wikipedia, all your enemies can say all the bad things about oh, you. Oh, tell me do. about it. They had me as dead. <laughs> I had a death date of 2008. I couldn't. I had to have it changed and prove. No, I'm alive. This is me writing you. It's crazy what Wikipedia is. Well, maybe it made you more famous. Yeah, oh, from being dead? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think no. so. There was, there was. By the way, there was no one in mourning, which is really horrible. I mean, think about it. If you're going, if you're going on a uh, an author tour, and everybody says you're, you know, you get to listen to a dead author talk, I'd show up for that. That's talk true. Because. I should, I should have run with that one. He's right. a, a posthumous tour. Yeah. My question is whether you'd be doing it lying down or not. <laughs> I do like to recline. <laughs> well, we're sitting up here. <clears throat> Mark is here with us to talk about the brain and spirituality. Those are my really big interests. As you know, I have the Laughter Heals Foundation. Oh, so all these notes I made on all the newest research on laughter research, I can tear up. <laughs> well, we've certainly done the research. Anything you can add to it is fantastic. And oh, by, by the way, I think that you're the first guest that we've had on the podcast that is talking about the actual science behind uh, the brain and the laughter and the spirituality and what it does. So, so just consider you are the first. Yes. All right, so there's no one has heard any of this unless they go to my website and then they'll find out some information on what Laughter Heals does. But most people don't read anymore, so let's discuss it. Right. Well, I stopped, I stopped reading books about 10 years ago and just started reading uh, uh, academic abstracts. So I would read yeah. maybe two or 3,000 a week in order to catch up uh, with how to do brain science. In 2002, I got invited by Andy Newber, who was the first person to do the first brain scan studies on on Buddhists who were focusing on pure awareness, mm -hmm. on Franciscan nuns who were basically reading passages from the Bible and attempting to feel closer to uh, Jesus. And there was something very fascinating about that was brain scan studies. They look exactly the same. Mm. So in fact, if you do any form of positive contemplative meditation, it stimulates the same circuits in the brain. So we had kind of identified where is the spirituality part in your brain? And we pretty much know, and it's pretty much been confirmed by at least 100 different studies now. Hmm. It's your insula and anterior cingulate. Yeah, which is a, a fancy word for well, it's a, it's a, a hunk of your brain? Is that what? Well, the anterior <laughs> cingulate sits right behind your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, if you can say that three times. Now that I know where that is. <laughs> okay, so it, it, it's, it's there in the brain, and it activates this. And what does that do to your entire body and your entire being when it's activated? Well, when you do activate those two nodes that they call it now, and actually neuroscience has just changed in the last three or four years, and everybody's talk, you're gonna hear everybody talking about brain networks. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna talk about the parts like I just said. You're gonna talk about the salience network, the part of your brain that, you know, think about salience like, you know, you savor a good piece of food or something like that. That's the part of your brain that puts a positive or negative value on whatever you're emotionally experiencing. Mm -hmm. Then when you and I, for example, right now, if you and I were working, I have to hold this microphone in my hand. I'm making eye contact with you. I'm making sure that my words are coherent. I've turned off most of my brain. I've turned off the salience network. I've turned off the imagination network. You're focusing on those uh, things that are in the presence. Yes. In the, in the present. And they call that the central executive network. And when you and I are conscious, there's just these two little tiny parts of your brain. If you take your, if you take your fingers and put them about one inch above each of your eyeballs, this is an area about the size of your thumb. And this is all that's being activated when we are consciously aware of whatever we are doing or saying. Mm -hmm. Then, okay. if you sit back and relax and your mind starts to wander and you go off into those all daydreaming-like states, now you're activating this huge part of your brain that's mostly unconscious. And this is where your fantasies are, this is where your nightmares are, this is where all of your positive hopes and wishes and fantasies that you've dreamed up and all of the your worries fears and doubts are being generated in different parts of the hemisphere there you're not even aware of it but it's always influencing your conscious state if you choose to take your consciousness and focus on it 
So it's like, if, imagine that your consciousness is a little tiny flashlight in this big black giant room. And wherever you want to shine that flashlight is what you're going to become consciously aware of. So if you shine it up into your right prefrontal lobe, oh, look at that. There's a whole bunch of worrisome thoughts popping around mm -hmm. there all the time. Oh, there's where my self-critical voice is. Right. Now, if I turn my flashlight... I wish there were cobwebs in front of mine when I'm <laughs> because I hadn't activated them in a while, but uh, oh, that would I, be the goal, wouldn't it? I wish I could show you the new pictures of the brain because imagine the most sophisticated cobweb intersecting literally every part of your brain. That's, mm -hmm. that's what we're looking at now. There is no such thing as a structure in the brain. Each neuron can send out an axon, which is like a long thread, that can weave itself all the way through the front of your brain to the back of your brain from the right hemisphere over to the left hemisphere. And then at the end of that axon, there's like a thousand little tentacles, and that's where the neurotransmitters come out. The fun one is dopamine. That's the one mm. that makes you feel really good, and serotonin makes you feel a little more aggressive, and so on, so on, so on. Oh, I didn't know that. Serotonin makes you aggressive. I was always told to take that to sleep. Uh, is that so I can punch my pillow? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> how does that work? Well, here's the interesting thing. So, uh, you know, Prozac was the first uh, antidepressant drug that was called an SSRI, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. Don't you just love what uh, neuroscientists yeah. and medical people do? You can't understand anything we say. I've always said this before, you know, when you're trying to get well, uh, you know, like all the drugs that you take and the chemicals that you take, for instance, I, I used to teach at a cancer facility. And they have this thing, it's, it's some fancy term that I don't even, but it's called the red death. That's what they put inside of you. It's like a chemotherapy set. Oh, yes. Thing. I said, why don't we shift that and start naming these things pleasant names? Just what you're putting in your body. Like I said, the red death, why don't you call it Santa Claus? Santa Claus is coming to visit your body, <laughs> offering pleasant gifts. And I think that we could start to change some of the dynamics just from these chemists and doctors and physicians and scientists to come up with other terms for these things. Well, that's what I think is just about to happen in neuroscience. So yeah. everyone's going to talk about networks. Oh, okay, there's your default mode network. That's basically when you're resting and your creative imagination kicks in. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Seligman, who created positive psychology, likes to call it the imagination network. But an earlier neuroscientist decided to call it default mode. They called it default mode because when we're studying nuns and Buddhists who are simply sitting there, still contemplating, mm -hmm. well, when you do a brain scan, you can't tell anything from one brain scan. You have to have a person do one activity and take a brain scan of that, and then to do a different activity that you want to measure and take a brain scan of that, and then you compare the difference. Well, mm. if you're just sitting there meditating, focused on a dot on the wall or watching your breathing, what do you tell the person to do to not be meditating? So we used to tell people, well, just as you lie in the scanner, don't do anything. Just rest. Don't, uh, yeah. don't try to think of anything. And it got to be called a resting state. And then neuroscientists... I, 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 I have four kids. I would literally pray just to do the study so I could be in resting state for one moment. <laughs> actually, actually, you Can are. I volunteer, please? <laughs> I would say that you and I have spent 50% in focused attention in our executive network mm -hmm. and 50% in our daydreaming, mind-wandering state, which is that imagination state, which is the resting state. That's where things just kind of swim around and weave, yeah. and that's what we've kind of been doing in this dialogue. It's been what, a free what, social Yeah, and I call that flow, when yes. you're in the flow. So, and, and by the way, it's related to me, it is anyway, and tell me if you relate to this. To me, it's divine flow, which is spirituality, which is spirit, which is authenticity, which is that you're tapping into that flow the meditative flow, whatever it is, is it, it begins with silence and contemplation and, and uh, mindfulness. And then it organically, naturally goes into this steadier flow than I would have with my head talking. I'm going to give you a paradox. Mm -hmm. Every time you take that thing that you're calling flow and give it a label, it stops flowing. Nah. <laughs> Well, for the sake of the conversation, I call it flow. Because when you give it a label, you're giving it a name right. and nouns and verbs and those and things. And you're out of it. Now you're back into your executive network where you're right. just focused on the task of whatever. But if you learn how to very deeply relax, mm -hmm. and we, we like to teach, I like to teach executive MBA students, for exact, 
for example, how to relax. Uh, they won't do a 20-minute meditation. They won't even do a five-minute meditation. So mm -hmm. we had to dream of 60-second meditations, and they're saying, I'll do that. And I'll test out your 60-second strategy, and if it makes me more money, I'll do more of it. Isn't there a paradox with that, the word relax being the same as flow or, or meditation? Wouldn't that be the same sort of paradox? I'm willing to bet you that you don't can't even tell me what relaxation is. Oh, uh, for my experience, what relaxation is, is uh, when the tension is less. The tension where? The tension all over my body. And when I'm trying to relax, I actually concentrate on different parts of my body where I can feel the tension and then work on the release of it. So now you have the dictionary definition of tension. Mm -hmm. Yes, a contracted muscle Contract, that you yeah. then uncontract, stretch out, and that would be called less tension, less stress. Right. That would be called relaxation. Right, um, and also my mind is, is just as t tight as my, ah, as my muscles sometimes. That's where you're going. What, what, yeah. would, what, would, uh, what would tension be in the brain? What would relaxation be in the brain? A uh, lack of fear, you know, less fear. Sometimes I'll identify the fear uh, being false evidence appearing real, and I'll pick. I'll say, "Okay, what do you fear?" And I, uh, and it kind of, I can see it going away. I, it passes by once I can identify. Oh, wait a minute, that was something you build up that was not true. You build it up to be true, and then you get into fear, and then you get in that, uh, you know, fight or flight, and so on. But if I identify it. Bam, now I can work into the relaxation. Well, there is a part of your brain that fear is very happily living in all the time. Happily? Yes. <laughs> if you did not... I'd like to give it some discomfort or something and not feed it for a little while. Neurosurgeons discovered that you could actually destroy different parts of the fear network and you then end up being fearless, which mm -hmm. means you have nothing to tell you stop that's going to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. So... You wouldn't even think about stepping out in the street in, in busy traffic because there's no fear saying, hey, this could be dangerous to you. Mm. So children are given, you know, the imagination to dream up nightmares and to dream up incredible goals, you know, heroes and villains and everything else. And the first thing that's going on in the brain is that the child's imagination is being created before they can even organize it into focus attention to mm -hmm. get, you know, to stand up, to ride a bicycle, whatever you have. What you do when you are saying you feel fear, you're taking that little flashlight, that dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex right above your, your eye is about the size of a thumbnail, and you're turning that flashlight on the fear that's always floating around in that imagination mm -hmm. center of your brain. Yeah. And because and you're, you're saying you need that fear yes. to exist. But if you obsess on it, right. the rest of the brain is going to go, you're in danger. Right. Or if it's emotional fear that's not real, because you're talking about physical fear of actual no. events and things I, like that. If I'm crossing the street, for instance. I'm going to say that 90% of all worries, fears, and doubts are nothing more than memories from the past being projected onto the future. That's right, and that's my point, exactly. So we're in resonance with that is, a, like I said, false evidence appearing real. So you've built the evidence based on your past and your experiences, and it comes into your present, and therefore you react to that. So you cannot get rid of it because the brain has put it there to keep you out of trouble, mm -hmm. for example, but it also puts optimism in there so that you can have any kind of fantasy desire you want mm -hmm. if you only if you destroy that side of your brain that's negative then you're going to be the type of optimist that's impulsive you'll run with every desire you feel <laughs> and we call that addiction <laughs> you see I how laugh. you need a balance oh i laugh because uh, that that's me too <laughs> But then you also have the optimism based on, let's say you've had these fears and you learn how to process them better in a better way, in a more positive way. Then you have the optimism saying, hey, I made it past the fear the last time. You identify it this time. You're, okay, I know how to manage this now. But this is the mistake that psychotherapy has made for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. In other words, what do you do when you go see a therapist? First of all, you know, what would be the first thing you would do? Why would you want to go up and give somebody 150 bucks. 
Well, you could boil it down. It's my mother. <laughs> well, is it, are you having a great relationship with your mother, or are you having a problem? I'm with your making mother? a joke, but it also is not a joke. But um, why do you hate I, your mother? I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why that's the joke is uh, every every therapist. It's your mother. It's your mother. <laughs> Don't give me a hundred dollars. So yeah, I mean, a lot of times it is based on working some things out from your past, from your experiences. Well, you're and, identifying a problem, right? Yeah, those so are initial your- experiences that you've had that kind of form the way you process life a lot of times. We'll follow this through. So you take your problem, you go into the therapist. What's the first thing the therapist asks you? What's your problem? What's your problem, yeah. Tell me about your problem. Mm-hmm. Go into detail about that problem. Mm-hmm. Let's explore the whole history of that problem. Yeah. So you feel a little bit of relief. It takes you about maybe 30 or 40 weeks to describe any single problem to another mm-hmm. individual because mm-hmm. the problem doesn't have words. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking, 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 and you leave having reinforced the memory streams that are holding that sense of problem. Uh, even if it's called a problem. Right. Right. That's the label that would kind of paralyze you from recovery from the problem. So here's, which you don't want to call a problem. So, <laughs> so here's where... Am spirit, I right about that? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to sum it up for the... You're taking your flashlight and you're shining on the problem. When was the last time you went to a therapist and the therapist said, before you tell me about your problem, tell me about three or four wonderful things that have happened to you this week yeah. uh, that you did very well this week. Uh, tell me about the good parts of your life. When was the last time a therapist ever asked that of any client? Well, they started to do it when Martin Seligman came up with positive psychology. And they discovered that by focusing on the positive aspects of your life, you stop focusing on the negative aspects of your life. You simply shifted the Mm -hmm. flashlight from your right prefrontal lobe to your left prefrontal lobe. And and are you advising this, that this is something that uh, people could um, benefit from? Uh, I'm saying it is the number one best strategy for dealing with any kind of problem, worry, fear, or doubt, physical problem, uh, neurological problem. You want to be deeply relaxed and you simply want to sit back and you don't try to do anything about the problems, the successes Mm -hmm. or the failures. You train yourself how to watch it. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're basically doing a version of Vipassana meditation because that's where our research started and doing brain scans of these individuals. So John Kabat-Zinn comes in and he modifies uh, the Eastern religions into a secular form of self-contemplation and self-reflection called mindfulness mindfulness i was about to say that yeah it's been a big secret for me that's for sure so there's over 2.5 million or 25 million uh studies on psychological mental physical health that you can find on on pubmed.gov which is the place where i live most Mm -hmm. of the time and of those the number one strategy for getting rid of any kind of problem you have is the most effective thing happens to be nobody's going to like the answer to this one then what is it? Pills. No. <laughs> yeah. You mean that's that's what they're using as their solution. You're not saying that is the solution. If somebody has depression, a pill is more effective than the number two strategy. What's that? Number two, number two strategy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Learning how to think about your problem in a different way. Well. It falls just slightly behind the pill. Now, so combine cognitive therapy with whatever problem you have, you get better even faster okay well let's let's take this i'm going to talk about the pill thing i am actually opposed to what to me seems like a synthetic manufactured solution to something that you could use practice like a buddhist i don't think that uh you know the buddhist monks are popping pills first before they meditate for instance well, they do like some of the psychedelics. They like some of the psychedelics. <laughs> right. Yeah, they might be doing a little ayahuasca or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's those are those are very temporary, you know, fixes. A, a and, better question would be, yeah. why are people so enamored with pills? Well, I definitely have the answer for that. People like the easy way. Yep, you know, that's it. And it's been done for them. When we need to process for ourselves, we have someone that we empower, like a doctor you never met or a chemist you never met a scientist you never met it's like it's like trusting the pilot <laughs> you know when you get on a plane you go i i hope you got me here because i have n- i have no ability to fly this plane so you're actually turning everything over to these pilots and saying okay i have i need answers for my life and you have them because i always say well just because the doctor's down the street 
because it's convenient to you. How do you know that this person has your answers? Well, the pharmaceutical companies are incredible marketers. They can oh. convince you that you want everything that you see on TV. Yeah, and then the side effects. I, I, I was like, Ambien, three quarters of the commercial is how it could kill you. <laughs> I need I need better sleep, not a dirt nap. Thank you. I mean, and I just think to myself, on all of the qualifications that they give at the end of the commercials, it's like I'd rather have what I had to begin with so <laughs> than let me walk around you. bruised and so, with diarrhea. <laughs> so let me now tell you what the number three most effective strategy is. Okay. It's competing with pills. What's In that? fact, nowadays, pharmaceutical companies can't beat this particular remedy. And the idea what that would be? Herbal? No. Acupuncture? Nope. Getting closer. Uh, okay. Uh, so something Eastern? Is it Eastern practice? Is it a practice of something? It's Eastern. It's Western. Okay. It fills every religious uh, system in the world. It fills every God. government system in the world. It fills every political system in the world. Not God or something like that? Or you know, Is that the answer? The answer is positive belief. Belief. But, faith. Right? But there's a medical word for belief and faith and hope. And what is that? Placebo. That's what they call it? It was first called placebo, and nobody... Which to me sounds very fake. You know, you take a placebo, it's it really a pill that has no effect to it. Well, right. It's, it's doing a, nothing. It's with inert substances. In right. It. And in 1950s, uh, the, one of the first placebo studies uh, came up. Um, this is actually what um, made one of, one of our books very, very popular, because this man came in and he wanted to be part of the study. He shouldn't have been part of the study. He had severe cancer. He had tumors mm -hmm. all over him. And they were doing this test on <coughs> Krabiacin or whatever it was pronounced. And he went into the study, and, he, and the doctor came back after the weekend, and all of the tumors were gone. I mean, all of the mm. tumors were gone. He was released from the hospital. Then a news article came out saying that the drug was shown to be ineffective. Mm. All of his tumors came back. He went back to the doctor. Because mentally he accepted this prognosis that these drugs don't work. No, this is the beginning. He lost his belief. This is the beginning of the awareness that if you believe the drug will work, it's more effective than the drug. And if you believe God will work, it's it's effective as well. Correct. If you believe a therapist will work, it's effective. Correct. If you believe these things and the practice of them, it's like body heal thyself or you know that that kind of thing that's what's going on if you engage in something you don't believe in you're creating cognitive confusion mm -hmm. that's going to cause you a whole lot of suffering mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter whether the belief is true or false or whatever else does the belief feel right to you yeah so since the new 50 percent of the fda drugs out there now cannot be placebo effect that they originally passed placebo effect. It means the placebo effect over the last 15 years have gotten stronger. It used to be about 25%. Mm. Now it's about 35%. And when it comes to pain, it could be as high as 90%. And, and you're paying all that money but for basically, I could be eating a rubber band. <laughs> Somebody would tell me that it's it, it, in 30 days, it's gonna have an effect and well, I'm gonna believe it and it will. One of the newest studies is, I'm going to hand you a bottle that says placebo in it, and you're going to know that it has placebo in it, mm -hmm. and your symptoms are going to improve. Really? Yes. I just think that, uh, I mean, you're really talking my language. I've had this, without the study, I don't do, like, necessarily deep dives into studies, but I do a lot of instinctual work. Like I'll, I'll make observations based on stopping and, you know, my book is called uh, Get Out of Line and Into Alignment. And when I'm in the alignment and out of line with going to doctors and all the things that they, they tell you to do, the they out there, and they with all the money, they with all the propaganda, they with all the spin, they with all the money to convince you that you have these things and the labels and all that, they have a lot of money to do that. So my alignment tells me get out of line with that and what does your natural instinct, before all that came in, what does it tell me? Would you say that's the same thing as intuition? Yes, but it's built by repetition because I had to keep getting out of line and repeat that to be able to develop my intuition. Guess which one of those networks intuition is connected to? 
which one of those networks? Remember, there's the default mode network, that relaxation mm -hmm. network, the imagination network. There's your focused attention network, the executive yeah. network. And I would that, imagine it goes to the imagination network. And the salience network, which is where you get into it through a meditation state. Yes, exactly. So, yes, your intuition is in the same area where all of those worries, fears, and doubts, and negativities mm -hmm. are, and critical voices. But there's another part that sits back there and listens to all of that inner chatter, mm -hmm. the positive inner chatter going on, and that is your brain's way of listening. It's, it's kind of like you, you you're, it's like your intuition is your CEO of a large company. And you bring in the vice president and all the different managers, and they're all arguing about, we should do it this way, we should do it that way, whatever else. I want to do it that way. And I need to fire them all. <laughs> you can't fire them. Remember, they're permanent. Oh, no, no. The only way you can fire them is have a lobotomy. They have a permanent contract? That's you, awful. You have to have a lobotomy. And if you have a lobotomy, it reminds me. Can I me. switch the board up and make, you know, maybe they can stay, but they, like, work in the mailroom? Can I do something like that? I don't want them to be a, a coder leader with me oh I, you take the negative little childlike complaining voices and pass them on the head and go there 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 and you as the ceo simply say you know what when i listen to all of you together this is what i think combines everything that you say in the most emotionally salient and savoring way mm -hmm. which brings me to the salience network how do you get into that so this is the number four. So pills are number one, cognitive behavioral therapy number two, placebo number three, combine any of those together, and it's more effective than any one of them alone. Number four is mindfulness, mm. with over 6,000 studies right now. So mindfulness, by definition, would be how do you sit back and simply watch all of that positive and negative chatter without judging it? So mm -hmm. you're kind of like in the CEO but that's kind of a neutral thing there's a state of mindfulness or any form of deep contemplative self-reflection where you're simply being aware and being present with whatever you're thinking or feeling or whatever you begin to realize that your thoughts aren't you because you're sitting here watching your thoughts mm -hmm. so that mindfulness state and that salience network and that anterior cingulate and insula that always lights up in that state that's you sitting in a dark movie theater in a chair like you and i are doing and there's our life with all of the emotions spilled out on the big screen. And we could sit here and eat popcorn and look at it all. And you oftentimes have an aha experience. I am not my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I have a ha-ha. I laugh at it. <laughs> Those are my moments, a ha-ha moment. Do you ever do that where you're actually laughing at yourself and you know be a little self-deprecating and laugh at those thoughts and think and enjoy them you know for like you're watching a comedy you talked come, about the metaphor of I, you're watching a movie i come from a jewish family if i'm not self-deprecating i lose my religion <laughs> cast you out i no, know I, I know the feeling and you know i always i always just think there's such a, a part of this maybe you're getting to the sixth element is uh is the humor and the laughter well, and I think it busts through a lot of those, you know, whatever is holding us back from getting in that state to getting to the fantasy state to getting to the salience. I think laughter can bust you through faster. It's a it's a better it's a faster road. Yes. And I'll tell you why. And people are only becoming aware of it in the last couple of years, thanks to the work of a man named Jack Panksepp, who recently died. Mm. Uh, Panksepp was famous, uh, made it onto the front page of Time or Newsweek or whatever it was, by demonstrating that when you tickle mice, they laugh. Mm -hmm. You have to have a special microphone because they laugh in, a, in mm -hmm. a frequency that's outside of it. It turns out that a whole lot of animals laugh. But laughter is coming from everything I've been talking about so far, all the problems you and I have been discussing. It's just the top part of your brain. So you can look at two functions. You can have that more deeper instinctual part of your brain that's driven by primal emotions like fear and desire and, you know, uh, care and comfort. But there's another core instinctual emotion, and nobody's ever called this an emotion before, called play. Mm -hmm. So there's a play circuit in your brain. And it's almost exactly the same as the seeking circuit in your brain, which is what gives you a boost of dopamine that allows you to take something that you are, that your brain instinctually desires. You know, so it's even, you know, it's really interesting. It is a primal desire and an urge for 
more money, more friends, more happiness, more health, more safety, more of everything. We have the greediest brains in the world. (laughs) And, uh, And the more and more that we tune into this lower part of the brain, we realize that there are primal desires that if we do not honor, we are sabotaging ourselves. Yeah. Of course, primal desires include pleasurable desires because that desire is, I want something that will give me a pleasurable reward. But we've grown up in a society, almost all societies throughout the world is like, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to have any hedonic pleasures. You you, you know, leave your body alone. That's why Catholics have confession and they have sin and, and right. I mean, it's, it's basically about the, you know, God coming down on you and, you know, judging you and, you're casting you out of society if you have these desires that you're expressing you're supposed to make them go away and uh, you're basically oppressing your feelings which i think also causes depression well the nice thing about catholicism is that you can go and sin and then run to play and live to sin another day <laughs> is that how they work i think that's how it works i don't know <laughs> Well, a lot of religions, I I do believe, are there to control these things, you know, and it's about, but it's about something else. It's not really about you accessing those parts of your brain that are going to bring you pleasure. It's the opposite. So we cut ourselves off from that pleasurable, desirable motivation that helps us to achieve our goals. Then we use all of the other things I've been talking about to help your brain figure out how to get up there. So that's why you're bouncing around in the imagination and thinking about it and organizing things. But that intuition part is sitting there and watching all of this. But we're never trained to use our intuition either. No. We're trained to use other people's Just our logic methods. and reason. Just this little, you know, yeah. just those two little tiny dots mm-hmm. in your head. And you're leaving out this vast imagination network that is what makes us unique mm-hmm. and allows us to get all those outrageous things that we want. But at the very beginning, the way, you know, we basically have a social brain, and the only way we learn how to be social is through play. Yeah. So play starts, obviously, in childhood. And you see rough and tumble play in all mammals and rats and whatever else, and it's a different kind of play. If a rat is, you know, looks like he's fighting with another rat, they do it with uh, paws open. Mm-hmm. And if the play gets too rough and you violate the other, the other uh, mammal's space, it becomes a fist. And, be, mm. and becomes and becomes more attacking. Same thing is true for human beings. Right. Well, we've also suppressed play. We don't play enough. Your brain needs to be playing for at least five or ten minutes every hour. We don't emphasize it. Look at look You're at what look at the brain. statistics that come across our screen all the time. Does it, it comes across? You know, the Dow Jones is up. The Dow Jones is down, and everything's predicated upon what they tell you is happiness but you never see something coming across like there's not a joke there's not a feel-good thing they they like if you watch the news i always tell people don't watch the news there's no reason to because no they, no read they, it they uh, do they do about 20 seconds at the end going hey a kitty kitty was stuck in a tree ha 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 that happened to me good night everybody see you tomorrow and everything else is all death destruction and blood and mayhem well the news is always exaggerated in such a way that your amygdala, the fear and threat center in your brain, really mm-hmm. lights up. It, you know, that's why you jump in even a scary movie right. that you know is all fake. Mm-hmm. Whatever your eyes see, your brain thinks it's and, real, and they play to that. And they play to that. So yeah. you should always read your news. Yeah. Well, I try not to do either. I understand. <laughs> yeah. If I do read the news, it's like nuggets without the opinions, and because when you start to get any opinions, you, they're projecting their own fear and their own stuff onto you. They choose. Yeah who your enemy is but let's go back and to then they will then they will give the profile of how this is the enemy and the biography of and the, the proof if you will because they're researching oh this is the enemy for today i don't know about you i grew up uh russians ironically were our enemy i was trained to think that there was there was these red people as a little <laughs> kid i didn't i thought there was just red people that were like robots Night of, Night of the Living Dead. They had no personalities of their own because I was trained like that. And you had to have a fallout shelter to go run to exactly. when the commies come attack. Right, yeah. They had fallout shelters and, you know, it so, just... So, so it, somehow the whole world has become focused on threats, danger. Exactly. You know, but when it comes to pleasure, we only do passive pleasures now. We turn on the TV, mm-hmm. we watch a comedy show. Right. We, you know, we watch, a, you know, something that's entertaining, but and, we're doing it passively. And even that, they censor. So we go back right? into the bottom, yeah, we go back into the bottom part of our brain. Mm-hmm. So now we have desire, that pleasurable 
urge to really go out there and gain more knowledge, experience, friends, whatever it is. But you have that element of, uh, so you have the pleasure, you have the desire, you have play as well. And play and laughter are the same circuitry. Mm -hmm. So all these animals are laughing when they're playing with each other. When was the last time you laughed when you were even doing golf, for example? Right. You might laugh all the time. No, 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 no. You, you picked the right one. I will not laugh at my golf. I laugh afterwards at my golf. <laughs> I laugh at how obsessed I am and how nuts I am. But I'm trying to get to more pleasure. I have too much uh, baggage. I have a lot of baggage when it comes to golf. A lot of stuff comes up for me. You picked the wrong thing. I don't know how you did that instinctually. You must have known. We heard my conversation with the other guys before the show. But I am freaky with when it comes to golf. I'm not myself. People think, you know, I'm a comedian, right? Can I give you a challenge? Yes, please. If it's going to help me, um, I'm starting to read the golfer's mind right now, and it's very similar to the things that you're talking about. It's not about the swing, the mechanics, and everything else. It's about immersing yourself in the pleasure and the experience yeah. of the swinging. You know, I mean, the whole thing begins sitting there, focusing on imagining that golf ball going to where it's going to go, mm. imagining how that feels in your body. It sounds so glorious. Moving your body slow motion, a practice thing in the most pleasurable way possible. The slower you, you do mm. a practice swing, whether it's in golf or tennis, the more your brain will help to organize and make that movement more efficient. You don't even do that. And in flow. Yes, and it's pleasurable. It's but I do a lungy thing. I call it the lunger. I lunge, at the last second, I lunge at the ball trying to help it along instead of just connecting with it if you get rid of the seriousness yeah and play golf yeah and play, play right. with your friends and laugh during it and mm. look for the most pleasurable way to do the game oh look i just hit the ball into the sand trap wonderful i'm gonna go i'm gonna go build a sand castle <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're using your intuition and your imagination, uh, that's what popped into my mind. I'll have to golf with you then because uh, it's just not working that way for me right now. That That is, you literally chose one of my my bugaboos, one of my, you know, last obstacles of life. It's funny because, you know, to be honest, I, I really do have a lot of life licked. It's That's not to sound arrogant. It, there aren't these, you know, we're talking about the labels and the problems and the fears and the all of that stuff has really dissipated to now we're down to like a, you know how they have the, the top 10 hits in music I've got like a top 5 you know that we could and golf is one of them unfortunately I think Panksept has adequately identified what we all need to spend most of our lives focusing on again the way in which Panksept mapped out these caring circuits these loving circuits mm -hmm. these playful circuits these desire circuits so you could take a rat and you could cut up the brain and find, and find out what's going on. You can't do that with human beings. So human beings, we can only study the top half of the brain, mm -hmm. which always involves our thoughts, which always mess up the picture. Yeah. Okay? Because we're leaving out the bottom half of the brain. So adding Panksep to everything we've learned about the top part of the brain, now we can have a beautiful dance where we have desire and urge and pleasure and we're emotionally immersed in the experience of going after you know, anything that would bring us any kind of reward on the broadest spectrum of the word reward, you know. Or you just keep it simple and masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough because that other part of your brain is going to want to now masturbate with other people. Nah. <laughs> I want to be social about that, and that may or may not work in the world No, today. that doesn't work socially. It doesn't, you know, folks, uh, I think I'm going to add a, a little ha-ha moment, an aha moment to your party here. I'm going to start masturbating in the middle of the party. I, I, I um, well, we have to draw it to oh, a close, please. man. We could, we, I should have a sequel with you. I'd love to. <laughs> because um, it's very interesting. It's breaking down scientifically some of the things that are instinctually coming up for me and some of the, some of the work that I'm doing in the Laughter Heals world. is uh, This is very much in connection with that. Well, it turns out there's one place and one thing you can do where you sit in the center of all these networks and you can kind of catch glimpses of it and if when you're in that state, that's the best state in order to ask your intuition, what does it think? Yeah. It may be right or may be wrong. So I always ask people to do a number of mindful yawns, not just yawning, but to really experience what a yawn feels like, because that's what gets rid of neurological stress. Mm -hmm. It slows down the blood flow in those areas that are overly active and generating too many negative thoughts. 
I'm going to share one with you that to see if it's just a difference in language or semantics. So I've, you know, spirituality and, you, you know, God is in the title of your book. I've got this version of, of God. It's like a divine. It's a divine sense. It's an essence. It's our true self. And it's there. It exists in all of us. And we're a temple for it. And when I breathe and take a pause from all of the other outside forces and just take that moment, that's when mindfulness comes in. That's when awareness comes in. That's where divineness comes in. And then flow and all of the, you have different terms for it. But that's how that's how I operate at my best. When I do take that pause, spiritus is a Latin word for breath, and I take that breath, and usually contrary action results. If I'm about to lie, cheat, steal, get over, sin, whatever it is, that pause, the allowing for the true self to display itself, it works a lot. Now, do you relate to that in your scientific terms, or do you understand what I just said? Uh, we've written, you know, s several books on that, starting with, you know, how God changes your brain. Mm -hmm. We did a survey, and we asked everybody to give a definition of what God was. Yeah, you've so, got all different definitions, right? We've got a thousand different definitions, and only about five to seven percent matched each other. Mm -hmm. so that makes sense. There's two words that mean something different to almost everybody on the mm -hmm. planet. God right. is one. Right. Love is the other. Yeah. Now, a word like money, even a young child immediately knows what it is. It forms a picture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in your head. So we created an exercise that helps people find what God is for them. Yeah. Because normally, basically, when you go to a church or a temple or a spiritual organization, they're giving you a set of values that, if you follow, will lead you to enlightenment or whatever. Right. But we discovered if we asked everybody to close their eyes and to yawn and stretch and deeply relax and just be kind of have that sense of quiet, mindful state of just being aware and in the present moment, then you ask your intuition, even though you don't know what it is, what is my deepest innermost value? Mm-hmm. And you can do this two or three times. Like, what's the first word that comes Love. to your mind? For me, it's peace. Mm-hmm. What would be the next deep inner value? Uh, goodness. Mine would be kindness. Oh, my God, you stole mine. <laughs> I gave it over to you. I, I, I mindfully put it over to you. That was my next one. Here's a question. Like it was a quiz. <laughs> Do these words come closer to your definition and experience of God? Yes. This is what's true for everyone. So whether yeah. you're an atheist or a believer... I say that all the time. I had an atheist on my show. He said, I'm an atheist. I said, I bet you're not. I said, what do you believe in? He goes, I believe, you know, you treat people right. I go, what if you called that God? <laughs> it is semantics, right? Yes. The word God is semantics because it all depends what you deem it to be. Even the head of the Vatican Observatory yelled this out to a thousand students one time. Mm -hmm. He said, if you think you know what God is, you don't. So you have to get rid of the word God, the idea of God, your central executive network of God, and go into that salience place, the place that has value and meaning and purpose in life. Yeah. You do that through any form of relaxed, contemplative, aware, self-reflective thing. Then you just watch all of the different positive and negative thoughts and feelings move through. Maybe old memories will come up. But then do one thing. Ask your intuition for anything. What is its opinion? And 50 or 60% of the time, that advice will be more salient, more meaningful, and more useful than anything that you were thinking about before. Right, and the actions will reflect that because they're ones of reflection, of high reflection. So, like you might be of service to yeah. someone. You might tickle someone. Well, you don't want to do that unless they ask you to, but you might uh, tell someone a joke. You might smile at someone. You might hug someone. You might just be present for them. You know, in the presence is being mm -hmm. present. So you're in the presence of this light, this source, this divineness, whatever you want to deem it to be. And I think you and I uh, connect on that level. We're, we're going to have to do a sequel. And I we have to have a sequel. You have to. You're not far away. No. How can we reach you? Not by going to your house in Camarillo. You can go to my <laughs> website at <laughs> markrobertswaldman.com, and then you'll find there's a couple of free ebooks, and I think you'll all really love one because it's 10 mind blowing things about the human brain that we've discovered. 
Number one being the reality you see is not the reality that exists. I love that. I love everything about you. This has been such a great pleasure. And I just met you. Someone believed that we should connect. And hopefully you feel the same way. Yes, I love this. <laughs> so, And you'll come back. Uh, this has been awesome. So that's how to get a hold of you. And do you have a Twitter and all that and Instagram? I never bothered. I can tell from your face. I'm too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> or shall I, shall I say I've transcended it? <laughs> that's a nice way to say I have no idea how to operate this. I'm on the information super cul-de-sac. You can probably... Maybe they should just come to your house. Give us your address and we'll come knocking on your door. But this has been a real pleasure. I hope everybody got something out of it. It was Can I Help You? And I know I was helped by this, and I hope you were as well. By the way, rate us. Give us a good rating if you're thinking about not giving us a good rating. Um, contemplate. Be mindful. Be restful. Go to that part of your brain that says, let's be giving to Craig's show that's for free. And I just listened to this, and it was of value to me. And all you have to do is press that little five for the five stars. And that will be what will manifest if you just get conscious and mindful and allow the inner beauty, allow the inner God to speak out and say, I'm going to spread the word to my Facebook friends to listen to this podcast with Mark Robert Waldman. Congratulations. And Craig Shoemaker. Congra congratulations. You just did neuromarketing. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, see you next time. Uh, give us a rating and pass the word. Talk to you later. Afterheels.org. Go give it a visit. Check it out. See how you can support. It's a nonprofit organization which offers grins, giggles, and guffaws and raises the awareness of the healing powers of laughter, working in aftercare facilities, hospitals, mood warriors, cancer patients, rehabs. Well, just about everybody needs laughter, and we're here to spread it around. It is the best medicine, so just open up and say, ha ha. This episode was brought to you by LaughterHeals.org. How was that for my announcery, advertisee, promotion voice? LaughterHeals.org. Thank you.